3: This is the Word to Stand them for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything going on that you need to know about. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We have lots of questions that have been sent in. We love your phone calls. Um, Tonight, here at Calvary Chapel, I am going to be teaching uh, Psalm 23, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, it's a psalm that everybody knows, even unbelievers. And yet I don't think a lot of us really, really get it or appreciate just how precious it is. So uh, I'm going to be in these next few Wednesday nights teaching uh, psalms, just a, a specific psalms. And, uh, and then uh, we'll figure out where we're going to go with our next book study. But uh, Psalm 23 tonight... Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the day the edition of the program. And uh, I hope and play that, pray that you will be blessed. Here is our first question from Luke from our mobile app. He says, God told Adam that on the day he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. Adam and Eve did not die that particular way. Why? Uh, actually, they did, Luke. Um, um, God wasn't talking to them about physical death. God was talking to them about... Their spiritual death. They died that day because they could no longer walk in the cool of the garden with God. Their communication was cut off. There was a curse that enveloped the world and of course everything changed in an instant and and in effect they were dead. Now, Now they were physically alive but God was speaking about that spiritual relationship we have, the fellowship we have with God That sin ruined, once and for all, sin ruined it. And Adam and Eve would never again have that thriving relationship with God based on just fellowship, based on a heart for God's heart for them and their heart for God. So we read that, surely you will die. Well, remember, Adam means Adam, mankind, or mankind. And man died that day. Every single man or woman born since Adam and Eve were created by God were born with a sin nature and uh, and they began to die. The minute we are born, uh, Jesus says, condemned already. The minute that we're born, we begin the process of dying. Uh, you'll also remember that, that Adam and Eve were created to live forever with the Lord. And so there was a physical day, death day set. But uh, in this particular case, he's talking about the, the spiritual relationship, the fellowship died. There's an old Don McLean song. They said the day the music died. And um, that was the day fellowship died on planet Earth uh, until Jesus came. Thank you for the question, Luke. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is the next question. This one is from Charles. Charles, I laughed when I got this question because I get what you mean. Charles says, I'm reading the Bible, the New Living Translation, for the fifth time. Good for you. And there is something that has finally just about driven me crazy. In Kings and Chronicles, it's the phrase recorded in. Examples, Jehoiakim's reign, including all the evil things he did, and everything found against him are recorded in. And then he says, recorded where? (laughs) Charles, the reason I laughed is because I had had one of those things. um, And these things are to this very day. And I'm thinking as a brand new Christian, you mean the very day I'm reading it? But obviously that means the very day that it was being written. Now here's what you're, you're seeing. Ancient kings uh, and ancient cultures kept written records. Um, they're called the annals in some places. Uh, they're called the chronicles in some places. I'm not talking about 1st and 2nd Chronicles, but just the chronicles. It was the recorded history. Uh, you remember that uh, especially it's highlighted in the book of Esther when the king couldn't sleep. God kept him awake. Uh, he went and said, give me the, the chronicles of the kings. And he was reading about or having read to him the things that were going on. And that's when um, um, Mordecai was was um, finally going to be recognized. So it was just in the records of the kings and in every ancient culture they always kept written records of the things that happened, the laws, the decrees, the decisions that were made, the the loyalty of people, the disloyalty of people. So when they talk about recorded in that's all that they're talking about, Charles It's not recorded in our bibles uh, it's not recorded um, it's just in in any other context, just in those um annals or records of the king and his particular um rain good question thank you very very much here is a question this is a hard one uh anonymous from our email inbox hi pastor ron what are your biblical thoughts on this my mother-in-law called me to ask if we can help out a friend of hers she needed 500 dollars, and asked my husband and i if we would buy food stamps from her so the exchange was that i would give her 300 dollars cash And in return, she would give me $500 in food stamps. I have four children. And since we usually pay about $500 a month for groceries, I thought this was a great idea. The lady was really thankful that we were able to help her out. And in return, we received groceries for the month and saved $200. I woke up thinking about it. Now, if I could have some sound effects, I would have some like really creepy, dramatic music right here. I woke up thinking about it. She continues, I was happy to help, but I was perhaps feeling like we are stealing from the government. My husband thinks it's okay since we pay taxes. I just don't know if I'm condemning myself or the Lord is convicting me. What are your thoughts? Is this okay? I do feel like it is, but I would like your biblical wisdom on this. Thank you. Anonymous, bless your heart. Um, you're, You're learning. You're learning. Um, to, to hear that still small voice of the Lord. Let me say, first of all, and, and there's no condemnation in this, God is clearly working on your heart, but what you did is really, really wrong. It is stealing. That's not That's against the rules for food stamps. People that get food stamps are not permitted by law to sell them. Now, I know people do things like that, but remember, we're Christians, and we live to a higher standard, and we have to do everything in the open, now, the fact that your heart was in the right place is demonstrated by the fact that the Holy Spirit woke you up thinking about it. That was God just saying, let's reconsider this decision. You were stealing. So too was the person who took your money. Um, I'm a little perplexed that your husband thinks it's okay since we pay taxes. Uh, it's not Okay. We Christians have to do everything in a way that honors the Lord, and we just can't take shortcuts. There are no loopholes. Um, Don't condemn yourself. Condemnation comes from the enemy. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 says. Um, But accept that God loves you, and the conviction is to keep you from making more bad decisions, but I think more than that, this is a test for the Lord to see how you're going to respond, how you and your husband are going to respond. This is something that the two of you really need to sit with your Bibles open and talk about. Because this is just some kind of sin that starts out really, really small, and we don't have of it. Um, and and if we ignore the the conviction of the Holy Spirit then we can begin quickly to quench the spirit in our lives. And these are the kind of things that keep God from being able to hear your prayers. These are the kind of things that uh, keep you from being able to to hear the voice of God and directing you in other areas of your life. So I think this is a really, really wonderful crossroads in your life. Uh, I remember getting saved, and there was all kinds of horrible things that I was doing, and I wanted the things that I was doing to be okay, too. They were okay with me, so why wouldn't they be okay with God? Um, but, but every time I tried to sort of resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I paid the price for it. And pretty soon you just get to the place where you think, you know what, why do I want to do anything that's questionable? And, and I want to make this clear. This is beyond questionable. This is wrong. What you're doing or what you did is wrong. And I would simply suggest that you and your husband uh, prayerfully consider this, again, with your Bibles open. And then what you do is you ask God together to forgive you and thank him for giving you the conviction, for, for teaching you the lesson and say, Lord, I don't want to do anything that's wrong. I don't want to do anything willfully that brings shame to you. And so I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then, anonymous, it's done. If you confess your sins, agree with God that it's sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness. And then the Holy Spirit is free to 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 minister to you, to convict you again if necessary. But when we start quenching the Spirit, it's really, really difficult. Now, here's one of those things, and this is for everybody in the audience. This is one of those things where we really learn that we belong to him. Instead of thinking like people in the world do, that this kind of thing is okay. We're thinking instead like a Christian. And what we want to do is we want to be in that place always where the Lord can speak to our hearts, where he can encourage us, where he can give us direction, or he can hear our prayers. So, what you're experiencing, and I've been through this so many times, especially early in my Christian walk, God is testing you. Are you going to respond to the prompting of the Spirit? And you are doing that simply by asking this question here. God is pleased. But learn from this and don't do it again. I'm also just slightly concerned that your mother-in-law would call you to ask if you can help a friend of hers like this. This is an opportunity for you to say, Mom, I'm a Christian, I can't do things like this. I can't cut corners, I can't take shortcuts. Everything I do has to be above board. So no, I can't do something like this, it's simply wrong. And what a witness that is to your mother-in-law, and I'm not judging her, because I don't know you, I don't know her, but if your mother-in-law's not saved, what a witness this is for her as well. So I hope that helps and I hope you're not angry, but those are good things. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. This one is from Mary from our email inbox. She says, Hi, Pastor. Do you think it's okay to tell people they are saved or to tell them that they're going to hell? I do hear you say often, especially on Wednesdays, I doubt there's no one here who is not saved even though you still open up the altar. And she's, she's talking about the altar call. Let me explain before I uh, I, I finish the question. Um, what I do on, on Wednesday nights, we we have Old Testament Bible studies. Uh, it's a midweek study. People have a lot of things going on up early the next day, and they've been working, or they got kids to get in school the next day. And so usually our Wednesday audience is committed Christians. And... Um, well, I can't know the condition of everybody's heart. Um, I want people to check their heart. So I'll say maybe it's unlikely that there's somebody here who's not saved, but just in case. And that's why I open up uh, the invitation. So that's my purpose in doing it, Mary. Now let me finish your question, then I'll answer it. She said, my husband I had a discussion the other day with our adult son. We asked him if he was saved. He professed with his lips, um, and he had been baptized and was on fire for the Lord for about 10 months. But the last six months, he stopped reading, praying, and even excited to be in church. Our son said, I don't know, or I think, I hope so. And then he said, maybe, maybe not. I told him that he was saved, but my husband said he could not confirm, and that he would not tell people if they're saved if he's not sure. After the family meeting was over, he told me uh, not to be telling our son that he's saved because his fruits don't show. Then he gave the example about the parable of the sower. I told him it's simple. If someone says they are and their life has changed or is changing, I believe they are saved. My husband finds it dangerous to tell anyone they're saved when he does not know. I find it okay, uh, but what are your thoughts about it? How can we be sure our son is saved? Uh, Mary, first of all, Uh, God bless you and your husband for having family meetings and for having an an environment in your home where you can talk about this. But here's the one thing. And parents, we have a hard time doing this. But if we're going to pray effectively for our kids, if we're going to rightly represent Christ to them, we have to be honest about their lives. People aren't saved because they got baptized. People aren't saved because they say they are. And, and Mary, here's my rule of, of thumb. If if somebody's acting like an unbeliever, there's no way I'm going to give them any um, comfort in suggesting that they're saved. Why would we do that? Especially in your case, when your son said, I don't know, I think so, I hope so, and then he said, maybe not. Why would we want to give him any hope? I know as a mom, you want your son to be saved. I get that. But it's better to be honest. Than if there's no fruit, there's no fruit. And your husband, when he talked about the parable of the sower, is, is right on the money. Uh, a lot of people get saved or a, apparently get saved and they receive the word at joy. And then there's very little fruit or no fruit at all. And the parable of the sower uh, is, is is the, the example um, that, that teaches that. So if your son has no fruit, Instead of saying, well, I think he's saved, I think what you ought to say is, you know what, you need to go and pray. You need to get serious with God. Open your Bible. If you're if you're living a life, go to Galatians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 22, and, 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 and read the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. And ask your son, does that list describe you? And then if the answer is no, then what you need to say is, what makes you think you're saved, Mary? Let me tell you a quick story. I don't have anybody waiting on the phone, so um, um, pa- Paula once told our son Ronnie. Now Ronnie's the one who saved now, but um, he was uh, something got him really interested in the rapture of the church and 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 something um, convinced him that it was going to happen soon. And he told his mom he's going to go get a haircut, and she said, well, well, why are you getting a haircut now? And he goes, Well, I think Jesus is going to come pretty soon, and I want to look good for him. And Paula looked right at him, Mary, and said, what makes you think you're going to heaven? And he looked at her and he said, Mom, you're busting my bubble here. And Paula told him, better bust your Bible than have you left behind, or bust your bubble than have, have than be left behind. So, Mary, you've got to be honest about your kids. You've got to be honest with your kids. And because of the answers he gave you, what a wonderful opportunity to say, well, don't you want to know? Ask him why he stopped reading his Bible. Why did he stop praying? Why aren't you interested or excited about being in church anymore? And and wait for answers. You obviously have a great relationship with him in the fa- and the family, so you can talk about these things. And I'm with your husband in this case. I would never tell somebody they're saved if they're not living like they are. On the other hand, if somebody's living a life and there is fruit and and their life has changed, then I want them to be secure in their, in their salvation. But it's impossible to be secure in our salvation, Mary, when in fact, we're not living with Jesus. We're not walking with him. The Bible teaches that. Um... You want to be sure your son's saved. Ask him for some answers to these questions. I know you want your son to be saved, but you got to want him to be saved enough to, to be honest with him. So Mary, I hope that makes sense to you, and I hope you're not angry with me, but the point is I want people to be really saved. I don't want people with false hope. And the Bible says people live like this, and they describe a list of sins Willful sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I've had people say, But wait a minute, Pastor, you say once saved, always saved. Yeah, but but what if you never were? What if you are that that heart that the seed falls on and it comes up at once, but the cares and the worries of this world choke it out, or the troubles and there's no growth, there's no fruit. We want people to really and truly be saved, Mary. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Anonymous from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. Do you believe God answers the prayers of Christians who are living in sin? Now, let me just say this. Before I read your explanation, let me say the answer is no, he can't. Now, here's the other question, even before reading the rest of yours. What makes you think somebody is a Christian If they are willfully living in sin, I just told Mary, people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it doesn't say it once, it says it twice. People who live in sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. By definition, the kingdom of God belongs to Christians. So I would look at people like this and say, What makes you think you're a Christian? Now, Anonymous, I've done this hundreds of times over the years when people say, well, I'm a believer. Or they'll say, my son is a believer, but... And they'll tell me about his drugs, his alcohol. They'll tell me about uh, his his sexual relationships. Well, what makes you think they're Christian? Well, they were raised in church. You're not a Christian because you were raised in church. You're a Christian because you met Jesus and you were born again. And if you're born again, the old is gone, the new has come. So that's really important. Now, let me finish the question here. Um, Here she says, I have a Christian family friend uh, who her and her boyfriend are living in sin. She called me and said they got approved for a house due to her boyfriend recently getting a job promotion. I'm not jealous at all. I'm happy for them, but I could not help but feel that when my friend said to me her prayers are getting answered, I felt a certain way. I'm happy for them, however, I couldn't help but think if God really answers prayers when we're living in habitual sin. They know they need to get married, but before they do, they wanted to buy a house first. Many people give credit to God for their blessings, but show no appreciation or cutting away from their sinful lives. Am I supposed to tell these blessings are not from God? Are they from God? What are your thoughts? Thank you, Pastor. Very telling sentence. They know they need to get married, but before they do, they wanted to buy a house first. Who are they putting first, themselves or Jesus? See, this really demonstrates where their heart is and a heart that that puts sex before God or lives before God, wanting to buy a house before God. I've had people say, well, you know, I want to look good for my wedding. So no, anything that comes before Jesus identifies you as an unbeliever. And again, I want to repeat the same thing I told Mary. You don't want to give anybody false hope. If they're acting like an unbeliever, treat them like an unbeliever. And I can tell you for sure, this is not God answering their prayers. God can't even hear their prayers. They have made a decision. Satisfying themselves is more important than being pleasing to God. And so their prayers cannot be answered. And it's funny how deceitful, how, how, how easily deceived we are by the deceitful devil. Um, believe me, there's no one happier than the enemy is. That they think God's answering their prayers when they're living in sin. So this is so important as a friend to them. You need to tell them that until they get right, they're so far outside of the blessing of God. You could say, "Look, I want to believe the best. I want to believe you're Christian, but your relationship cannot be blessed by God," and you're going to get lulled into a sense that we're okay, everything's okay, and and they're they're going to find themselves so far from God that when the devil then comes and tries to destroy, they're not going to have anyone there to help them. You're right. A lot of people give credit to God for their blessings, but show no appreciation by cutting away from their sinful nature. And unless we repent, there's no reason to think that they're really Christians at all. This is important. These people are your friends, so tell them the truth in love. You may lose them as a friend, but see, that's a risk you have to take if you're really a friend. And this is heartbreaking for me and this is just sort of the way the world views Jesus anymore. He's here to bless me. But, but I don't have any responsibility to him. And anonymous, that's simply not a real or authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. We have 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
3: Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Let's go to Converse now and talk with Nathan on line one. Nathan, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hi Pastor Ron, my question is: uh, uh, um, In Revelation chapter six, it says that the sun turns black like sackcloth made of goat hair. But then in chapter eight, it says that a third of the sun was struck and it turned dark. So how how could the sun turn a third dark if, if it's already completely dark?
3: Yeah, wonderful question, Nathan. And see for every time I see your name on the board. I get nervous because you ask really, really difficult questions, but I appreciate it. Nathan, what that really means is the sun will turn dark or black for a third of the day. So it's not like one third of the sun is black and then the other two thirds are normal sunlight. It's it's for a third of the day. That's what the language says. For a third of the day, the, 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 the earth will be turned dark because the sun Uh, Won't show, you know. In in um, uh, the great tribulation, we're told that the sun is going to be turned up seven times hotter, so that will actually give a little bit of relief in terms of the temperature for a third of the day. But then that sun comes blazing back. So for a third of the day, so what that says is for for uh, eight hours of the let's just say. Um, just, just to make it easy, 16 hours at the sun from sunrise to sunset. Literally half of that time is going to be dark because the sun won't shine. Does that make sense to you? Yes. yes. Very good. Thank you, Nathan. God bless you. Uh, you, too. Let- you too. Thank you. Let's go to Joellen, who is in traffic on I-35. Jo Ellen, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi. Hi. Um, so, first-time caller, long-time listener, and I just started oh, you. attending your weekday services probably in May or June. Um, oh. But I heard a, a sermon um, by my home pastor that I go to on Sundays recently that kind of made me think about something differently or anyway I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were on it um,
3: okay
2: I've always thought about hell as being eternal separation from God mm-hmm. and in the sermon I heard uh, he kind of he brought up if if God is um, omnip, uh, omnipotent and omnipresent and all that, then He's everywhere. So it wouldn't be eternal separation from God, but eternal separation from His grace. And that instead we would be eternally in the presence of His wrath. So that I've just never heard yeah, of it I, that way, and I was curious. Yeah. You know, uh,
3: yeah, Joel jo- jo- I—I think that's a little bit disingenuous, and maybe I'm, uh, you didn't understand, or I—I'm I, or not understanding clearly. But separation from God is exactly what it means. Now, it's separation by choice. We know heaven is where God lives, and nothing impure, nothing immoral, uh, will ever enter heaven. Um, so, so it, it's like a banishment or a punishment. We're all eternal beings, so we're going to live somewhere forever. And in this life, we have to make the choice of where that's going to be. While we're alive, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die and then face the judgment. So while we're alive, we have to make the choice. Do I want to live with God? We call that being born again, being saved. Or, Or do I want to live independent from God? And if we choose to live independent from God in this life, then we will be independent from God in eternity. Luke chapter 16 talks about a place of torment, not not the great white throne judgment or the lake of fire, but in, until the lake of fire is created, uh, people have been in that place in torment, um, enduring the wrath of God uh, since the moment they died. And that's always going to be the case. So um, the idea that, well, since God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere, um, they won't be in the presence of God at all, but but it's by God's choice. Uh, God simply won't be able to have any kind of fellowship with them because judgment, I mean, that's what condemnation is. It's eternal judgment. So uh, I think maybe if I'm understanding correctly that he's gone just maybe a little too far or he's just thought too much about the word omnipresent Um um, you know, it, people say God can't look upon sin. Well, obviously He looks upon sin all the time. He He, he watches as sin of the world was put on His Son. Uh, it means He can have no fellowship, no relationship with. So it's like they're going to be living eternally in torment in a completely different place that God is never going to be. It'll be. It's described as as darkness. Uh, it's described uh, as as where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, where where the worm um, uh, never dies. In other words, they're always going to be there, uh, and and that's just the way it's going to be. But uh, I I don't I, I think he's just playing a little bit too much with the term omnipresent. Does that make sense? Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: Okay. Well, thank you. Thank I you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joanna. Good. Thank you. I appreciate the call. If you uh, get back to church one of these days during the week, uh, introduce yourself. I'd like to meet you face to face. Here is a question I'm not sure I understand completely, and I'm going to do my best for to, to answer. It's from Joanna from our email inbox. Greetings, Pastor Ron. Thank you for taking my question. The last few years I've been studying my Bible thoroughly. I'm studying the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, while God's speaking to him about bringing his people back to their land. If the Jews are in Israel today, why would God be forth telling Ezekiel about bringing his people back? Now, let's stop for a moment there, uh, Joanna. Um, um, Ezekiel, of course, was, was taken to Babylon uh, in the um, Babylonian dispersal. Um, God used the Babylonians to judge. Um, Daniel also went to Babylon um uh, Jeremiah um stayed in Judah he, he was given the choice to stay there or to go uh, Ezekiel was Jeremiah's counterpart and he was prophesying in Babylon so when he's telling him that they're giving him a prophecy prophecy telling him that the, the Jews are going to come back to their land the, the dry bones um passage uh, this isn't new uh, to to Ezekiel um so so they were banished for 70 years from their homeland. Now, there was a remnant, a few people scattered there, but, but as a nation, the nation was destroyed. And because of that, um, th- their, their homeland was basically empty, a haunt for jackals, uh, we're told. Um, and so um, um, that was a prophecy of the Jews being regathered into their homeland. And that's exactly what happened. Um, the, the Jews uh, were, 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 after 70 years, they came back to their homeland. Uh, there's a longer term fulfillment of that prophecy, Joanna, uh, when, when after 70 A.D. and Jesus spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, from 70 A.D., Jerusalem was without Jews, basically, until uh, 1948. And so there's, as often the case in prophecy, there's both short-term and long-term fulfillment. And this was a prophecy of both. Ezekiel, I will be bringing my people back to my homeland. You can read about um, Ezra, Nehemiah, in uh, Zechariah, uh, Joshua, and Zerubbabel. Um, so, so Jews, having been gone for 70 years, were able to come back to their homeland. And then farther down the corridor of time, um, in 70 AD, when they were completely run out of their homeland, they were gone for from, from more than 1,900 years, and, um, or for nearly 1,900 years, and, uh, and they were permitted to, to regather their nation. So, so that's what the, the, the prophecy in Ezekiel is speaking about. Then she says this, and this is where I'm a little confused. Also, Deuteronomy 28 regarding the curses put on Israel, I realize those Jews in the land today do not fit these curses. Um, the, the curse, curses Joanna, were, were, were they, they still apply to to national Israel? Um, the, the 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 curses and, and these go back farther than Ezekiel, uh, or and Deuteronomy Moses when he when he put on the the mount of blessing and the mount of cursing. If you do these things, God will do these things. Bless you. If you do these other things, God will curse you. And it was a choice that God was giving them. And so, um, um, yeah, the curses still apply to the nation of Israel, uh, not individual Jews. They didn't apply to individual Jews there. Those were curses put on national Israel. Now, here's the tough part. The only nation of people these curses happen to the happened to, is the so-called black people. It appears to me those people have been cursed and dispersed all over the four corners of the earth. Also, I'm studying the genealogy in Genesis 10. It's very clear to me that the sons of Noah uh, are of the sons of Noah. Ham is the Africans. That's true. Uh, yet Zondervan dictionary states, the Negroes have been, and remember, uh, uh, this is an old um Commentary. Uh, The dictionary states the Negroes have been identified as being exempt from the bloodlines of Ham. Could that mean that they're God's chosen people? I appreciate you answering my question. No, it has nothing to do with black people at all. Um, There's no curse on black people. Ham was cursed, but not by God. Ham was cursed by his angry, embarrassed father. So this was the curse of God. Now there are people, the Mormons in particular, declared for the longest time that black people the descendants of Ham are cursed. We know that's not true. It was never true. That's a that's just really bad theology. So there's never been a curse from God because of Ham. We don't punish the sons for the sins of the father. And, uh, you know, you get generations removed for God to be still cursing people uh, because the sins of the Father is foreign to him. Judgment, Isaiah 28 says, this is a strange work for God. So um, th- this isn't a curse at all. And in the plight of of black people, um, African slavery has nothing to do with with Noah, with Ham, or anything. Biblically, it has everything to do with just the sin of mankind. So, black people are not God's chosen people. There is uh, um, some movements, the black Israelite movement, um, most notably, uh, who, who we're God's chosen people. Uh, Jesus is black. Um, all of that is nonsense. If you look at the the the, 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 the profile of people, uh, who were in Jerusalem, even in and around the time of Jesus. There were people there from all over the world. Simon of Cyrene was a black man from Niger, from North Africa. Um, so, so think about these things and, and, and think historically with accuracy, but also we have to consider the nature of God Now, if I have, Joanna, misunderstood the back part of this question, uh, please forgive me. I'm simply trying to make sure that you understand that there is no curse from God that's ever applied to a race of people. And certainly that's the case now. And we have to be really, really careful. When we start thinking in terms of black and white, whether we're talking about blessings or cursings, then Then we fall into the trap of this world, and remember we 're supposed to be different. There can simply be no prejudice at all in the heart of a truly born again believer and all of us who who still are carrying some sort of prejudices, we need to repent of those prejudices, and we need to do it and Part of that begins with understanding the legitimate history of of uh, people groups in this world. Um, it's true, Ham's descendants were the, the African nations, um, but 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 Ham, the curse of Noah to his son Ham, has nothing to do with God, at all. Thank you, Joanne. I hope hope that explains it, and I hope I I got it correctly. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question anonymously from J. Just the the letter J from our mobile app. Hypothetical question, Pastor On: A man or woman who is an unbeliever and is an owner of a bar or of a liquor store gets saved. Is it right for them to continue owning or running said establishments? How could I counsel someone in that situation? Jay, this isn't hypothetical. at all. I have abs- absolutely run in this question uh, several times over my 26 plus years here as a pastor. And it applies to all kinds of other issues as well. Here's the thing that we need to understand. Uh, we tell people about Jesus and they get saved. We've got to let the Holy Spirit be the one who starts leading and guiding their lives. We don't tell anybody. It's not right for you to continue owning a liquor store because people buy liquor and they, get it. they become alcoholics and they ruin lives. Um, God will do that. I promise you God will do that if they're truly saved. And we've got to let them begin responding to the movement of the Spirit in their lives. Let me give you a perfect example using, using a different occupation. One of my favorite people in this world. Um, he's been with us now for 20 years, I think. And um, when he came in here, and he's a computer genius. Um, he walked in one day and was sorry he was here. He and his wife um, had their kids with him. And they, they, they both said to each other, we're never coming back. As soon as they got in the car, the kids said, oh, we love it. Can we come back? We want to come back. So the kids made him come back the next Sunday. The next Sunday, they got saved. Well, just listening to a couple of weeks of Bible studies, the man called and made an appointment. And I said, uh, sure, come in. He sat down and he said, well, he um, introduced himself. So I got, you know, I didn't know who he was. But he introduced himself and and said, well, you know, I got saved just a couple of weeks ago, and I've been listening to the studies and been reading the Bible, and, and he says, I think I need to make some changes in my life, but I want to run it by you first. And I said, okay, what is it? He had a whole bunch of pornography sites. That's how he was making his living, and he was doing really, really well. And here's what he said to me. He said, you know, I just don't think I can do that anymore. And I felt like I was talking to Zacchaeus. I looked at him and said, today salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus. And and I I used his name. But see, that's, that's what the Holy Spirit's job is. So Jay, we should not have an opinion on that. We certainly shouldn't be giving them counsel. What we need to do is pray for them without judging them. Pray for them. Lord, speak to their heart. According to your will, you do what you want to do. And and if we'll do that, the Holy Spirit's always faithful to go get his. We have to be careful not to think it's our responsibility. We, we, we help catch the fish. We throw the bait out. But we don't try to clean them. That's God's job. So, Anonymous, Jay, I hope that makes sense to you. But... Uh, if they come to you, you're talking about how could I counsel someone in that situation, if they come to you and say, you know, I feel funny now that I'm a Christian about owning a bar. Lots of bad stuff goes on and I just feel bad about it. Th- then then you could say, well, 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 that's the Holy Spirit. What do you think God is doing? But be very slow to tell people what to do. Let the Lord deal with them. Um, you know, when I got saved, Jay, Uh, I was gambling, playing poker, uh, going to racetrack all the time. And, And that didn't stop instantly. I changed instantly, but that didn't stop instantly. But God was demonstrating to me that his way is much better. And it was just a couple of weeks, and I didn't want to do those things anymore because I realized that when I'm there, Jesus isn't. And I wanted to be where Jesus was. So God can do the work. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is. We lead them to him, and then he's the one who leads them to making life decisions and changes. So if somebody came to me and said, well, I'm feeling funny about this, I'd say, well, maybe, just maybe, God has something better for you. Why don't you pray about it? I'll be praying for you. And then I'll ask him to check in with me. Talk to me next week. Let's see what the Lord's done. And we've had people in this exact situation with the bar. We've had people say, you know what, I gotta sell the bar. And they did. So good question. Thank you very, very much. 3409585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Randy. He said, In churches, how should church discipline be carried out? I don't ever see it at my church. You know, Randy, hopefully, ideally, most of the church discipline that occurs is, is sort of uh, under the radar. We don't want to embarrass anybody. Um, you know, when we, when we see somebody who needs to be disciplined in the church, we go to them individually, and we hope that they're going to receive the word uh, and, and be convicted by it and then change. Um, uh, that should be very, very private and something that we should give people just a little bit of time to deal with the Holy Spirit about. Uh, if they don't make any changes in their life, then then two or three go and talk to him. And if they convince him or her, well, then we've got the situation where um, um, the, the process of discipline is worked out. The only church discipline that, that the the average attendee of a church should ever be involved in is when something has to be disclosed to the whole church. Um We've had to do that one time here at Calvary Chapel, um, where somebody was engaging in a real harmful behavior, and they simply wouldn't stop, and we had to put them out of the church. We'd let people know there's a wolf in our midst, and we've got to put them out. Uh, Most of the time, it never gets to that, but church discipline should be private, respecting the anonymity of people as best we can until their sin is very public. Now, Randy, let me make an exception here. Uh, A church leader, if one of my pastors, and they all know this, by the way, if one of my pastors was ever found in willful sin, uh, then that pastor, because he's a public person, uh, same thing would be true with my elders, uh, then that sin would be disclosed to the church. And, and the discipline or the, the, the correction that would be carried out, uh, that would be something that would be uh, be done publicly. But that's because leaders uh, have a little bit different standard. So I hope that makes sense to you, Randy. Thank you very, very much. This will be the last call. We've got Lennon on line one. Lennon, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Quick question. Jews.
2: Don't need the gospel preached to them. I heard something about that, and I just wanted to see what your take on that.
3: Okay, Lennon, that's a very. I'm glad you got in. That's a very important question. Um, um, Jews do need the gospel preached to them. Um, Romans chapter nine, the first four verses, uh, make it very, very clear. Uh, There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Acts chapter four, verse twelve. Um, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. Uh, that's the Gospel of John. Uh, so so Jews, like everybody else, need Jesus. Now, Lenin, the problem with that is there are um, politically correct churches um, who don't want to proselytize Jews. They feel, well, they're God's people, so they have a special relationship. It's simply not true. It's simply not true. And it is um, heresy, um, but, but it's the worst kind of unloving so-called theology. Not to tell people who are sinners that they need Jesus. He's the only answer for sin. It's wrong. Uh, Jews are going to hell if they don't know Jesus Christ, just like everybody else. God is no respecter of persons. And everybody who's ever lived apart from Jesus Christ are going to spend eternity away from God. So thank you for calling. And please, if you're in a church that is saying that, you're in a really unhealthy, uh, unbalanced church. And it's just the worst kind of heresy. letting people's eternal lives are at stake. So thank you for that. That always saddens me. Romans chapter nine is nonsensical. If Jews don't need Jesus, how will they tell? Unless they're sent a preacher, how will they? How will they hear? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, we are running out of time here today. Let me remind you that uh, Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. Uh, tonight, I have the privilege of teaching Psalm 23. Next week, uh, in response to a special request, next Wednesday, I'm going to be teaching Psalm 32. And then we'll see where it goes from there. Uh, but uh, tonight, a verse-by-verse study in in the, the most well-known um, chapter in all of our Old Testaments. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arboff from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, I pray the Lord's blessings on you all. May he bless you and keep you. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back, Paul and I, tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Have a wonderful evening. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4